Better get indoors. The Indianapolis Twisters are on the air. Let the countdown to kickoff begin. And now, with the pregame show, here's the voice of the Twisters, Ken Tomash. And thanks for being a part of Central Indiana Sports History tonight. Just about 15 minutes, the Indianapolis Twisters kick off their inaugural season in the Continental Indoor Soccer League here at the Palace of Auburn Hills in suburban Detroit against the Detroit Neon. I'm Ken Tomash, and it will be my privilege to bring you the play-by-play -play account of all 28 regular season and any playoff games the Twisters play this summer. And you can hear it all along with our Monday evening talk show, Twister Watch, right here on AM 1430 WMYS. First, a little history for you. The Continental Indoor Soccer League, the CISL, began in the summer of 1993 with seven teams, grew to 14 teams in 94, 15 teams a year ago, and 11 clubs will take the field this year. The Twisters are in the CISL's Eastern Division, along with the Dallas Sidekicks, the Houston Hotshots, Washington Warthogs, defending league champ Monterey La Raza from Mexico, and these Detroit Neon, who uh, they provide the opposition tonight. The Western Division boasts the Anaheim Splash, the Portland Pride, Seattle Sea Dogs, San Diego Soccers, and the Sacramento Knights, who were league runners-up a year ago. This Indianapolis franchise has gone from inception to reality in less than four months. It was back on February the 22nd that the CISL awarded the franchise to David and Rodney Goins. Tonight, after coming up with a logo, a staff, and a roster of players having training camp for a little over a month, it takes the field for the very first time. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, everybody. How are you? It's Tim Hanlon, your congenial and humble host for another episode of Good Seats Still Available, that curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for joining us. Uh, and uh, another fun episode, as we try to do here uh, on tap for today. We are getting back into indoor soccer and the uh, interesting little nook and cranny of the Continental Indoor Soccer League of the 1990s, uh, known as the CISL, uh, one of the many in the long string of alphabet soup uh, labels and leagues uh, of professional soccer in this country, uh, but a very interesting little uh, detour in it. Uh, the mid-90s was an interesting time for American soccer. Uh, not only the uh, uh, the CISL and indoor, indoor soccer played in the summertime in major arenas around the country uh, with a lot of ownership from NBA and NHL owners and the uh, arena owners themselves to do so, uh, but also this was done in the uh, backdrop of uh, the demise of the uh, arguably the, uh, the the progenitor of indoor soccer professionally in this country, the major indoor soccer league, which had uh, whimpered to a death in uh, its death in the early 1990s, uh, and also the rebirth of outdoor soccer, which had sort of laid moribund uh, with the demise of the NASL in the mid-1980s because of, of course, the 1994 World Cup, a huge uh, global event that uh, brought spotlight to uh, the outdoor game back in this country, uh, and frankly, it's a glaring absence. And of course, as part of the uh, uh, the winning of that bid in 1994 was the guarantee to FIFA that uh, another major professional outdoor league of substance uh, would be born uh, in the uh, in the wake of the tournament, which it did in Major League Soccer in 1996. But uh, that's uh, for other discussions uh, on other episodes. But today, we're going to be talking about the uh, the backdrop of that 
uh, for what is the, uh, uh, you know, probably the last major attempt at uh, solid uh, top-notch professional indoor soccer. That is the Continental Indoor Soccer League with our guest, Ken Tomash, who was uh, the voice of the uh, Indianapolis Twisters, uh, later named the Indiana Twisters, uh, in the last two years of that league, uh, 1996 and 1997, and has some very interesting stories about the CISL, uh, its formation, uh, the Indiana slash Indianapolis franchise as part of that, uh, and uh, some really interesting um, uh, discussion points that uh, we'll get to uh, about the CISO with our guest Ken Tomash uh, in just a couple of seconds. Uh, let's see here. We are promoting, of course, our alliance and our relationship with our friends at Audible. Uh, we also remind you, of course, that Audible's uh, audiobook service is uh, good for the heart, good for the soul, good for the ears, uh, and we do encourage you to give it a try. A free month's trial of the Audible service is uh, yours for the uh, for the taking at uh, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Uh, it is there you will get a, a promotional offering for a free month of Audible's audiobook service, as well as, importantly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy uh, over that 30-day period. Uh, and I trust you will enjoy one of over 80, excuse me, 180,000 plus titles uh, to choose from in uh, just about every genre that you can imagine. Nonfiction, fiction, you name it, it's there. Sports history, absolutely there too. Uh, give it a try. It's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Please get your free uh, month of uh, the Audible service as well as a free audiobook download for you to uh, enjoy gratis, free on us. And uh, you can cancel at any time. And uh, it's well worth a try. And we appreciate your doing so if you've done it already. If you haven't, give it a try. I think you'll enjoy it. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And uh, those free uh, free goodies are there for you to uh, to enjoy. So thanks for, for giving them a try. All right, uh, let us not waste any more time. Let us uh, segue smoothly as possible into our conversation with Ken Tomash here on The Big Show. I've always been a sucker for these kind of alternative leagues. Um, I just think they're just remarkably fun. Um, sometimes they've been ramshackle and sometimes they've been, you know, sometimes they've been outstanding, but they've always been interesting. And so I've just always been curious, kind of like you, uh, kind of have this fascination with, you know, teams that don't exist anymore and what it was like and, you know, all the, the, the alternative ways of doing things. And it's just, why did they come into existence in the first place? And why did they go away? You know? well, so well, these are all, these are all interesting things to think about. Yeah, so let's start there. So why do you think? And then we can obviously start get into your background and then how you and we'll get into the CISL, which is kind of some of the the the, the kernel I think of what we you know, maybe uh, emblematic of this. But why do you think uh there's a fascination there? Uh, maybe this is a personal sub journey as well, but I'm always curious as to find out why people are similarly interested. Well, I mean, we all love sports in one way or another anyway, and so the more the better. Uh, but I think that the they're just so many great stories and so many weird things that happen. I mean, the NFL is kind of, you know, corporate and you know what you're going to get for the most part. So the established leagues are pretty much, you know what you're going to get. But in these alternative leagues, really weird things happen. And so the other thing is, I think, is a lot of us, if we didn't grow up in a major city or a team or a city that had, you know, all four major franchises, you know, sometimes we had these teams. You know, I grew up in Tampa, Florida, and we had, we had no basketball and we had no hockey and you know so we had a football team and a soccer team but we had a, a cda team for a while the tampa bay thrillers and so that was our team and so it was just interesting to go and see 
and you know, one year uh, they moved right before the playoffs. They moved from Tampa, Florida to Rapid City, South Dakota. I mean, you're not going to see that in one of the so-called established major leagues. So it's just really, it's sometimes they're head sh- head scratching, um, but they're always interesting, and we we have this emotional connection to them, maybe because they were so weird, you know, because they they were like us. They're you know they had their foibles and they had their their missteps, and and you loved them anyway. Yeah, I think Tampa is an interesting market, right? Because especially, I think you know, for for uh, fans of this generation, and and maybe frankly, the embarrassment of riches now that that Tampa has as a professional sports town. Uh, you know, you go back to you know even the early '80s. Certainly, I guess certainly, definitely the '70s, right? When the Tampa Bay Buccaneers came in the NFL in 1976, and obviously the the, uh, the Tampa Bay Rowdies prior to that. Uh, aside from that, there really wasn't a whole lot of, quote unquote, professional sports, at least at the top tier level in the Tampa, St. Pete metropolitan area until around that time. Right. Right. When I grew up there, we had the, we had two teams. Basically, we had the Bucks who were terrible and the Rowdies who were great. And I fell in love with both of them pretty early on uh, for different reasons. Uh, I mean, I was just learning about sports and learning about football. And they went 0-26 to start. I mean, you, you, how could you not feel for them? So I've been 40 years a fan of that team. Uh, and, but the Rowdies were winners, and they were flamboyant, and they had flair, and they had these great personalities. And, and so that's when I really fell in love with the game of soccer. But yeah, but the rest of the Tampa Bay area... You know, the Lightning didn't come around until 92, so we didn't have hockey. We did have the Florida State League, and I love the Florida State League. So we had the Tampa Tarpons, which was an A-ball Florida State League affiliate of the Cincinnati Reds, and they played at old Al Lopez Field. And my best friend and I used to go to games, so there was that. But seriously, uh, probably the third biggest sport in the Tampa Bay metro area at the time when I was growing up was professional wrestling. I mean, championship wrestling from Florida with, uh, you know, guys like Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair, guys like that, and, and their announcer was Gordon Soley, and it was on TV all the time. That was probably the third biggest sport that we had at the time. Um, we didn't have a major college. The University of South Florida, which has football now, didn't then. Um, so we really didn't have much else. And so we would get these, you know, these weird teams that would crop up, you know, so we had, uh, you know, the, the thrillers, like I mentioned, in the CBA. And then there was talk of having a women's uh, basketball team at one point that never happened. And the Rowdies played indoor sometimes. And then there was another indoor soccer team. And there was always talk that maybe there would be a hockey team, but there was no place for them to play. And just, you know, so we, we went back and forth with all these uh, little weird offshoot teams. But uh, the ones that endured, I mean, the Bucks have been there forever. And now it seems like the Lightning has been there forever, and the Rays have only been there for 20 years. But yeah, when I was growing up, we didn't have a whole lot. All right, and uh, and uh, but obviously there was something there in terms of sports uh, and uh, the potential of uh, pursuit professionally to do that. Then that led to an interest in a broadcasting career. So maybe you can sort of tie together some of your your Rowdies memories with sort of your your budding career interests and how that sort of uh, blossomed from there. Oh, yeah. From the time I was 13, I wanted to be a sportscaster. I mean, I wanted to be on Monday Night Football. Um, that didn't happen, but I was fortunate enough to be able to to have a broadcasting career for 20-something years. I uh, wanted to do that and uh, went to the University of Florida to study broadcasting and was a local TV sportscaster for several years and did some play-by-play stuff on the side. And, and as it turned out, uh, you know, it took several years later um, and 
bring it back around to the CISL where we were originally headed, you know, that was the first time I got a chance to get behind the microphone and call soccer. Um, and so, and from there, that led to doing outdoor soccer in the lower divisions, to doing major league soccer, to doing some international soccer, to doing more indoor soccer. So I, I was for a time uh, able to do a whole bunch of soccer broadcasting. So it, it was a lot of fun. But yeah, it all really started um, with this fascination, this love for this team, this Tampa Bay Rowdies team um, that was just so able to capture everyone's attention at that point in time for that brief window. So for those uh, 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 eagle-eyed listeners, or I guess you can't be eagle-eyed and listener, but um, the uh, our, our episode with David Whitford a, a number of weeks ago actually uh, stumbled across uh, a, uh, a league that uh, did come across your radar in your early uh, fledgling career, the uh, Senior Professional Baseball Association. And frankly, uh, for those who uh, are so inclined, uh, either because of that episode or, or despite it, uh, the uh, the only sort of surviving clips that are really out there that you can find on YouTube, uh, with the exception, I think, of a CNN uh, a spot with uh, the old Nick Charles and, and some others, uh, is stuff that you actually <laughs> produced when you were uh, working at uh, at Station WINK. Um, I, I don't want to drag you back to the Senior Professional Baseball Association, but before we go further, uh, any sort of uh, memories of that sort of uh, year and a half of, of interestingness? Yeah, that was super fun, too. And if you haven't listened to that episode of the podcast, everyone listening now, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Yeah, here's where being a pack rat really helps in that I saved a bunch of stuff. I just saved it, and I don't know what I was going to do with it, but it had been sitting on tapes for years and years, and I'd been lugging them around the country. And now with the advent of YouTube and with the technology to be able to digitize those tapes, I thought, well, maybe there's a few people out there who remember this league. Maybe this would be of interest to somebody. But in any case, it needs to be preserved. because like you said, there's so little of it out there. So I digitized it and put it up there. Um, that was fun because at, you talk about growth. I mean, Fort Myers, Florida now has a bunch of um, sports teams. and There's a bunch of stuff to cover. But when I was there in the late 80s to the very early 90s, you know, we didn't have really much to cover. I mean, we, from when high school football was in the fall and then some high school basketball, and there was a single-A Florida State League team in the summer, but it was up in Charlotte County, uh, we didn't have anything to cover. So when someone said, hey, we're going to put a professional baseball team in Fort Myers, and it was me right down the street from my station where I was working, and you're going to have all these great names in the league that they were talking about, and Raleigh Fingers and Ferguson Jenkins, and those guys were going to play in the league. We were like, hey, this is like getting a major league team for us. And so we covered it like it was a major league team. You know, We went to all the games and covered all the games and did live shots before the games and just as if we had a major league franchise in town. Now, the, the populace didn't exactly see it that way, and they didn't respond to it in major league numbers. Um, but I got to meet a lot of cool people and had a lot of fun covering the games and got to see some of the guys who I had grown up watching play um, and then to get them when they were in a little different place in their lives, as you know, David Whitford said on your podcast. They were a little different. They were they weren't playing, you know, to be stars. They were playing just because they loved to play, and they all had those great stories. And I found out a lot of them were really cool guys to be around at that stage in their lives. So it was a fun while, but it was a mess because, the, however well intentioned it was, they really didn't know what they were doing. They overestimated the market, and like you like you saw, it, it collapsed halfway through the the second year, which was unfortunate. But I still have a Fort Myers Sun Sox cap here somewhere that I got just as they were folding. So 
that little piece of memorabilia sticks around. Well, there you go. So that is uh, for you uh, completists out there. That is our little episode number 30 uh, with uh, author David Whitford, who uh, who wrote uh, a, a book about basically the first year of the existence uh, of that league. We encourage you to check it out. And uh, I, I think maybe this is uh, how Ken and I actually got uh, connected in some way, shape or form. OK, so let's uh, maybe the torturous journey, perhaps to, to Indianapolis, but maybe we can sort of um, maybe wend our way towards uh, this thing called the Continental Indoor Soccer League. I suspect that uh, prior to uh, having this opportunity presented to you, uh, you were uh, obviously active in uh, sports and sports broadcasting and, and had a, a bunch of things ongoing. I think from my research, you were also uh, at either at the time or prior uh, minor doing minor league hockey in Indianapolis, but maybe a little bit of a, a background as to how you got to Indy in the first place. And then we can sort of stumble into this world of the CISL that uh, you've somehow found yourself uh, entrenched in for the last two years of its existence. Sure. So I was in Fort Myers working at Wink TV. And, you know, your objective at that stage of your life when you're in what was a small market at the time is to get to a larger market. So uh, I was putting out resumes. I had an agent getting me, you know, trying to find me jobs on my behalf and found this job at the ABC station in Indianapolis. So my wife and I moved to Indianapolis in 1992. I went to work at the television station there doing sports. And then in the summer of 1993, I was just having a conversation with the guy who was doing the play-by-play for the Indianapolis Ice, which was an IHL team at the time. And I hope you do a show on the IHL if you haven't, because that was a great league too. Um, And he just mentioned that he wouldn't be able to do it that fall because he had a bunch of uh, basketball commitments. And I said, well, have they gotten anybody to replace you? He said, I don't know. So I, you know, I knew the ice, we covered them. Uh, so I called up their president, Ray Compton, and suggested myself. And I had no hockey experience at that time because growing up in Florida, I had rarely seen, my experience with hockey at the time had been uh, Dan Kelly on the USA Network calling the finals when the finals were on. Um, so that was about it. Um, but so I said, well, this would be a fun challenge. Um, this would be fun to do, to be the voice of a team for a year. So yeah, in 93, 94, I was the radio voice of the Indianapolis Ice. Uh, we had a very bad team. Um, had a really good bunch of characters, and uh, Dwayne Sutter, one of the famous six Sutter brothers, was the head coach, so he was a lot of fun. So it was a great experience um, being the voice of the ice. But so fast forward a couple of years, I hear there's, they're going to announce uh, a soccer team, a professional indoor soccer team for Indianapolis. I'm thinking, well, I, there's a chance. I mean, there's certainly nobody in this town who's done indoor soccer play-by-play, including yours truly. So all I had was a tape of me doing hockey. So I, after the press conference, I covered the press conference. I was still working at the TV station at the time. I went up to the owner and I said, you know, I want to do play-by-play for you. Here's a tape. Um, and that was in February of 96. And over the next course of the next few months, eventually, I, I guess, somehow, they decided that the only option they had was this guy. It was me. So that's how I fell into the, to the CISL in 1996 in Indianapolis. So wh- what did you know of the Continental Indoor Soccer League prior to that? And, and obviously, you had a very limited... Limit, limited play-by-play, play, general. Say, say again? Do-da. I, I think a lot of people had no idea. I mean, so it had been around 93, 94, 95. The first time we heard, I think, the story broke in the paper, hey, there's going to be a press conference in a couple of days, and they're going to put a team in this thing called the Continental North Soccer League. That was probably the first time most people had ever heard of it, at least in, in Indianapolis. I had no idea it existed. Um, we didn't have a team. I mean, by that time, by the time of 
uh, you know, having gone through the 95 season, they had, they had 15 teams, but they'd compressed down. They'd lost a couple of teams. And I knew some of the names. I mean, I knew the San Diego soccer's name. I knew the Dallas sidekicks name, um, but it was, it was a different time. And I had no idea that the league even existed. So um, it was a brand new thing for me, but I was thinking, here's a chance to do something I've always wanted to do, which is play by play. And having done it for a season with a hockey team, I thought, well, this would be fun too. do a season of indoor soccer if I could get the gig. Yeah, it's interesting because the the league, you know, itself was born sort of out of the ashes of the uh, old major indoor soccer league, the original one. And uh, for the last two years of that existence, that existence, uh, its existence was uh, known as major soccer league, uh, which was, I think, sort of an attempt to kind of clunkily uh, try to bridge into some outdoor and indoor stuff together and sort of harmonize across a yearly schedule, all that kind of stuff. And yet here you have sort of the rebirth of indoor soccer after all that sort of that stumbling and, and demise in the early 90s. You had uh, a bunch of arena owners sort of ring led by by Jerry Buss and, and Ron Weinstein, you know, of the L.A. Lakers and MISL L.A. Lasers fame, uh, basically saying, hey, you know what? This idea actually is not maybe bad. It's just it's probably just bad being directly competitive with the NHL and the NBA during the winter months. How about during the summer? Yeah, and Ron Weinstein obviously worked for Jerry Buss, and he had this idea, you know, the, I'm sure Dr. Buss owned the forum at the time. It's like, hey, how do we fill some dates? Here's a chance maybe to fill 12, 14 dates in the summertime. Um, and like you said, the, the MISL slash MSL had kind of petered out and disappeared. What was left of its franchises went one of two ways. A couple of them went into the NPSL at the time, and a couple of them then Dallas and, and San Diego said, well, we're going to go into this league. Now, I, I, I know where Ron Weinstein is. I haven't had a chance to catch up with him yet. I, I've always wanted to hear what that sales pitch was like, telling those teams, those storied teams, hey, let's, let's play in the summer instead of the winter where you've had lots of success. But he pulled it off and was able to find some other arena owners to come together to put together a seven-team league in 1993. Um, and so there they were, 1993. They actually had a league, and it actually played all the way through, and they had seven teams, and interest was pretty high because they doubled in size by the next year. Well, we'd certainly love to find uh, Ron Weinstein for a conversation, so we'll put a little push pin on that one and uh, see if we can mutually figure out a way for a future episode on that. Um but so I guess uh, as you became aware of it, and obviously in a, in a more concentrated way as an actual gig uh, for the local franchise in Indianapolis, um, what of soccer in the summer? Because I think it's important to remember that uh, around this time is when obviously the World Cup was in the United States in 1994-ish. And uh, you also had, you know, the, uh, uh, the mandate from FIFA to create or recreate a top tier Division I professional league outdoors in the United States, which obviously didn't start until 96. But that's the backdrop of this idea, right? So the the idea of doing indoor soccer in the summer made sense a lot, I guess, in the late 80s, early 90s when the idea was being formed. But, you know, real professional outdoor soccer was also starting to, shall we say, recoalesce. You're right. And so two things did happen, right? So when CISL launches in 93, 94, 95, they basically have the summer to themselves. And things went 
pretty well. I mean, the first year, they, you know, they averaged just under 5,000 a game. They boosted it up to about 5,200 a game and about 5,400 a game in 95 and really had the, a really good year, almost 6,000 a game uh, in 1996 going head-to-head against this new thing called Major League Soccer. So, But that was a little bit of a blow. What people didn't realize is that uh, when, when the original NASL went under, all we had soccer-wise basically for the next 10 years or so was the indoor game. Um, which was to some, uh, you know, a hyped up version of outdoor, very exciting, and to others was a bastardization of the game. But that was what we had, and the indoor game was very successful into the mid 80s, and then its luster kind of faded a little bit towards the late 90s or late 80s. So here we are, mid 1996. This new uh, MLS has begun. Really, it's the soccer that is traditional that people understand and competing head to head. So that was the first thing that would kind of started to chip away at the CISL. And the other thing was the WNBA, which came along the next year. So all these NBA owners uh, who by the time 97 got around, there was a handful of them left in the CISL, uh, went with WNBA teams as a brand extension of their NBA teams. And they found that it was a little easier sell and something that their salespeople knew more than indoor soccer. And so it was a little easier for them to make that transition from men's basketball in the winter, women's basketball in the summer. And I think those two things really put the the nail in the coffin of summer indoor soccer. And as we've seen over the last 20 years, the growth of outdoor soccer at all levels has siphoned off the best talent from indoor to where indoor soccer today is just a, a shell of where it was uh, in 1996. I mean, there's nobody today who's as good a player indoors as Tattoo was or as Precky was. And, and those guys played as recently as in Tattoo's case 15 years ago or maybe less. And in Precky's case, played indoor 20 years ago. Yeah, so I want to come back to that in a little in a little bit about sort of sort of uh, the 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 state of indoor soccer or the state of outdoor soccer and all that kind of stuff because I I, I think it's also it's really really true right what you're saying is that and even a generation before those players that you mentioned like the Steve Jungles of the world and the the Stan Turleckis and the uh, you know and the uh, Freddie Gugurevs and I mean you know, they, these are uh, there, there's a point at which that the, the best talent in soccer was playing indoors because like to, like you said there really wasn't a whole lot of outdoor stuff out there that was worth uh, you know pay, that could, could be paid for and. Uh, it was sort of that. And these, some of these were really tremendous players. And, um, you know, the National Ho- Soccer Hall of Fame is uh, sort of uh, in uh, uh, in abeyance until it gets uh, relaunched next year. But uh, you wonder uh, how some of uh, the indoor game should be uh, remembered as part of this long and torturous history of soccer, because, like I said, the best players are out there. And frankly, some of them made the transition back outdoor like like a Precky, right? The the Hall and I, and I'm a Hall of Fame voter, the Hall and I have had this discussion before, and the new executive director of the Hall is a friend of mine, so he and I need to have this conversation again, that I think you can't tell the story of soccer in this country by ignoring indoor. Now, there are some people in the Hall of Fame who, like you said, who did play uh, indoors, but they're in because they, of their outdoor accomplishments. Like I voted for Victor Nagira every year that he was on the ballot. He made it on the ballot because he had a substantial outdoor career. Um, but I voted for him every year because he was probably the best indoor goalie of all time. That's just this little thing that I have. I think that there needs to be some space carved out in the actual Hall of Fame um, to recognize uh, this facet of the game, which kept soccer alive in this country from 1985 till 1996 when MLS launched. And I think that for the staid traditionalists, you know, indoor is a weird 
weird bird because it's it's not enough like outdoor for outdoor people, but it's too much like outdoor for some other people. So it's always had this kind of weird niche in the middle for people who are okay with what we call human pinball. But I think, yeah, uh, our Hall of Fame isn't telling the whole story of the, the history of the game in this country if it continues to ignore uh, the stars of indoor and the great stories of indoor. And I don't know if they're if they ever will. Well, all right. That, that's a, a, another uh, crusade that uh, I'd love to chat with you and maybe we'll figure out some some rationale on how to sort of tackle that, um, because the NASL, of course, was was very much I mean, they, arguably they was that was the launch of indoor soccer back in a sort of a tournament kind of thing. So you're right. It is intertwined. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, all right. But so let, let's talk about late 95, early 96. Right. So the. Um, it seems that 95 or in 1995, the, the, the Continental Indoor Soccer League, about three years under its belt, uh, it's up to 15 teams. Uh, you, you break, it breaks a bunch of records that year on both on the field as well as off the field. I think Dallas had a game uh, with the, the sidekicks uh, of over 16,000 at the Reunion Arena. Um, and, you know, it, it seems that uh, despite some some. Uh, uh, you know, some uh, bizarreness, I guess. And at the end of the season, you see four, I think there were four teams that folded. Um, you know, this seemed like it was, you know, they had a, a prime uh, sports Fox TV deal. There's a, there's a car dealership sponsorship thing. It seems like it's on the up and up. And in steps, uh, I think the only expansion franchise for 96, the now the previous uh, Indianapolis Twisters. So maybe you can give us a little uh, a sense of what you knew about this as it was announced, as it was launched, and uh, what you were sort of walking into. We were kind of learning on the fly because, like you said, yes, 95, it was this big league, 15, which was until recently the largest indoor league it had ever been. But Pittsburgh folded, Las Vegas folded a year after winning the championship. They won it as an expansion team, and then they folded the next year. The team in Mexico City went under. Uh, so, yeah, the, you were stepping into a league that was kind of teetering a little bit. You still had some really strong franchises. Dallas was still Dallas, and they still had Tattoo, and they still had great crowd support. They were doing really good things in Washington and Sacramento and, and, and places like that. And so the, the Indianapolis team comes into existence. I still don't know why they did it. Again, here's another thing where the sales job, I mean, Ron Weinstein must have been a really good salesman because he sold David and Rodney Goins, these two brothers, with only a little bit of maybe sports background. Rodney had played uh, college soccer, uh, and I don't think David had, uh, but somehow they convinced them that the team in Indianapolis and the Continental Indoor Soccer League in the summer at Market Square Arena was going to do great guns. Um, didn't turn out that way, obviously, but uh, I think that they thought it would. Um, they just didn't really know how to go about it, and that's been the downfall of a lot of these kind of offshoot teams or these alternative leagues is that people get into it with good intentions, but they really don't have their eyes open in terms of, okay, what is it going to actually take for us to be successful? And that means a lot of effort has to be put into ticket sales and marketing. So when you see a, a club now, just to go back outdoors for a second, Sacramento Republic FC, when they launched, they said, here's what we have to do. And they went and got people that had actual professional sports experience at a major league level who understood what it took to sell tickets and to market and to be a big league franchise and to look like, even though you were playing at that time in the third division, that you were a professional team with gravitas and it was something worth spending your discretionary dollars on. Goins has never got that. I don't think in the two-year history of the team, 
ever really had anyone who was selling tickets. We had people who were in charge of keeping track of tickets, and we had people who were in charge of making sure that you know tickets got where they had to be, but we didn't have anybody physically selling tickets until about midway through the second year. So the first year was just so, you have all that expansion thing. I mean, most expansion teams are a little bit of a circus from the get-go, but then you put this pressure of, you have an inexperienced ownership group with an inexperienced front office in a league that has its ups and downs in a market where the game hadn't really been successful uh, in a league playing at a weird time of year. And all these things kind of came together and it was disaster is too strong a word, but it was really interesting. It was really touch and go there. And as you know, and anybody who knows the history of this, partway through the year, about two thirds of the year, the league took over the team because the Goins has walked away from walked away from the team. All right. Before we get there, who who are the Goins brothers? So David and Rodney Goins were uh, two brothers from Chicago, uh, the Chicago area, and they were entrepreneurs. Um, and I, I always liked David very much, a uh, very nice guy. Sadly, he passed away a, a couple of years ago. Um, Rodney was a former player and still thought of himself as a player and, in fact, did suit up for the team, which was another one of those kind of circus elements that happened uh, uh, in the history of the Twisters. Um, but they really didn't have the kind of pro sports experience that you would like to see in an ownership group, especially one that was taking over a, uh, a brand new team in a, in a market where, again, the sport was a little bit uh, unsettled. And so um, they, they had a vision. They said all the right things. They said they were going to do X, Y, and Z. And I just really don't think that they had the kind of capitalization that you need to pull it off. And so when things didn't go as well as um, as they thought, as they hoped, you know, we had 5,000 for opening night, had an exciting overtime game against uh, the Washington Warthogs, which lost in overtime. Um, they were never able to build on that. And so there was no, there were no really great sales and marketing efforts. We didn't have a commercial, you know, we didn't do billboards. It was not like today. You wouldn't do a soccer team today without having billboards and a serious marketing presence, but we didn't have that. Um, so they they just really it was just a combination of inexperienced ownership and a team and a league and a product that was hard to market. Um, so all those things combined to make things uh, really chaotic in that summer of 1996. Well, what was the source of, uh, best you could tell, the source of their income? And, and how do you think they even kind of just stumbled into the CISL anyway? Like why why get into sports? If they're going to get into sports, why why this why this fledgling soccer thing that's uh, it's hard to as you say kind of sell because of its uh, uniquenesses plural <laughs> well i do know that david rodney they, they they grew up all around the world i believe their parents may have been uh either military or in government service because i know that they bounced around all over the uh in a variety of countries and so they did get a a love for the game but they owned a company called executive sports management in chicago which was a sports marketing company and basically their deal was they owned and managed luxury suites and they consulted and did corporate hospitality for a bunch of uh, uh, Fortune 500 companies. So they were kind of tangentially in that sports space. But that and running a team are two totally different things. I mean, people want food. If people go to a game, they want food, and they want that experience of the suite. So that's a little bit easier sell than trying to sell indoor soccer. Rodney's uh, love for the game, he played briefly at Indiana University and finished at Howard University, so he was a player. Um, and, and so that combination kind of, hey, we're in this sports space. 
Uh, Ron Weinstein has told us that there's money to be made here. Uh, they have a love for soccer. Yeah, let's do it. I can only speak to, to what I know from that is that that's probably the genesis of it. Um, and I'm certain that by <laughs> the summer, by August of 1996, they were regretting that decision, obviously. Yeah, I think it's important to, to uh, remember, too, that um, uh, the uh, the base of owners of these teams in the CISL was basically a combination of either private ownership, right, in the case of the Goins, which is, which is their case, and uh, owners of either an NBA or and or an NHL uh, uh, team outright, right? So it almost seems like you've got kind of like those that know how to do this professional sports marketing game, right, with the NBA and the NHL. Mixed in with uh, others who think they can, but maybe, frankly, aren't as capable because that's not their full-time gig. Right. Agreed. I mean, Washington, they did well. Abe Poland knew. He, Abe Poland got it and hired a bunch of people. Mike Evans was their general manager, and the Warthogs did well and drew good crowds. Um, why they were one of the teams that went away, I, I don't know, while others survived. Uh, Jim Thomas in Sacramento, they, I mean, at least, they, at least they had an idea. They had connections to the community, and they could leverage some of their existing infrastructure to make their indoor team uh, more successful than it might otherwise be. And in Detroit, basically, they just gave away scads of tickets. I mean, they had basically their season paid for by the the sponsorship agreement with GMC that saw them be the Detroit Neon for the first few years and then uh, finish up as the Detroit Safari when GMC gave them, I don't know, a million plus dollars. So basically, the, the Neon slash Safari were just giving away tickets left and right. So that was their business model. Uh, but yeah, then, and other teams were kind of like like the Goins brothers or like in San Diego where they weren't owned by an NBA or NHL team. Seattle was, and they had the, the trouble, I think, of if you've ever been to Seattle in the summer, you'd much rather be outside much of the time than go inside. Um, so that may have played into it as well. But uh, yeah, so the, the CISO was kind of interesting hodgepodge of people with not only different backgrounds and different strengths and weaknesses, they eventually came to have a different vision of how things should go. And that led, I think, to the tensions that eventually broke up the league. Yeah, I actually lived in uh, Seattle in, six, in 96, 97, went to a couple of Sea Dogs games myself, Fernando Clavio behind the bench, etc. Um, yes, uh, a few thousand of us rattling around uh, uh, on a summer evening. Kia Kira, <laughs> that's right. Um, all right, so in steps uh, in steps Ken as the uh, voice of the Twisters, right? So maybe a little background, a little fun, little uh, memories, if not if not fun, maybe just you know memories generally. Uh, what is it? What is it like to be uh, the quote unquote voice of a team? Uh, you're on a, a relatively um, you're on the the higher end of the AM dial. Um, you got a you got a you got a show that's uh, also beyond just the games themselves uh, called Twister Watch. G- give me a sense of sort of how. Uh, how how well thought out this was or how much you had to kind of think that through uh, as as part of this uh, this adventure you were starting. Well, we had a, a, a guy named Matt Dockstader who was kind of setting up a lot of these kind of infrastructural items. And so he hired me to be the voice of the team. Uh, got went out and got the radio deal. Um, hired my my good friend Dan Capsalis to do color, and we were a great team. We were great friends, and we hit it off really well. And we had a lot of fun. So, the thing about indoor is a it's it's always exciting. So at least you had stuff to to get excited about during the course of a broadcast. If you're uh, doing expansion outdoor soccer team, you're going to lose a lot of 1-0-2-0 games. Maybe that's not the most exciting thing, but at least in indoor, there's going to be lots of goals scored. So we did have a lot of fun. Um, even 
even though the team was struggling, uh, we were struggling to to put wins together. Uh, but yeah, so we were playing a couple couple three nights a week and traveling. You know, we were doing all the games on the radio except the ones in Monterey. That's uh, the reason for that. We'll we'll get to in a bit. So yeah, and then we had a weekly weekly kind of call in show uh, where we'd have. Uh, people on from the team we'd have players on we'd have coaches on um so it was you know we were giving it our best effort from the standpoint of we were on an actual radio station which is not something necessarily that would happen today because now everything's online um and we had you know we had an actual coaches show for lack of a better term a call-in show once a week and it was it was it was lots of fun um it was new for a lot of us i mean i had grown up watching the MISL game of the week on USA Network, and it was almost always Slobo Ilievsky and the St. Louis Steamers and, you know, Jungle and the New York Arrows who were on. And so getting back to that a little bit and being able to, to be the voice of a team was a lot of fun. And, quite frankly, indoor is a lot like hockey in terms of how you call it. So having had that experience of a year of calling hockey, the transition was not as hard as it might otherwise have been. Um, things really did get a little wonky because crowds weren't there and money pressures got tight and we kept hearing rumors about, you know, are we going to make payroll or what's going to happen? And then Weinstein would come into town, have big closed door meetings with the owners and he would leave and we would think that everything would be fine. And then two weeks later, things would start to go pear shaped again. So it was a chaotic summer. Uh, all the while we're trying to, you know, get this team's footing underneath it and trying to win some games and, uh, going to places I hadn't been in a while, and so it was it was a lot of fun. But it was really um, it was really weird at times. It's just it's just weird to be uh, part of the inner workings of an expansion organization that's going through the growing pains. But it's actually a pretty big commitment, right? Uh, a brand new franchise in a still fledgling league, unproven, and uh, here you are with a, a year. You know, you got a full season long uh, radio deal with a, a coaches show, if you will, and and uh, you know that's that's actually a pretty interesting and and, and solid commitment, media wise at least. So that's that seems like it's, that was a smart idea, no? Yeah, it, it seemed in in theory, yeah. And I've always been of the the mind that there are worse ways to spend your marketing dollars than to put your games on radio and or television because every one of those broadcasts is a two two and a half three hour commercial for your game and your sport. And so, um, in that respect, they got that part right. And um, I don't know how many people listened, um, but I do know that uh, you know that that part of it was a was a pretty good outreach to the community, and that was what they were intending to do, to look big league. You couldn't really look big league unless you had some sort of a media presence. Um, and that first year we weren't on, I don't believe we were on uh, any of the game of the week broadcasts. I know we were the second year, um, it, but not everybody got prime network back then either. It was kind of like being tucked away on this niche cable network that not everybody got. So uh, cable then in 1996-97 was not what it is today. So you had to pretty much listen to me if you wanted to follow the team. And uh, listeners to our show can indeed uh, relive some of those uh, those episodes because uh, Ken on his blog, Ken, Ken K-E-N-N, don't forget the second N, dot com, uh, has a, a page devoted to uh, well, a couple of pages to the Twisters. But there's a, a whole uh, a page devoted to with all just about uh, – well, a pretty comprehensive uh, set of broadcasts, so you can literally click on them and, and on any of the uh, the episodes and any of the uh, the games, and uh, you can actually hear uh, the voice and the enthusiasm and the the uh, uh, perhaps a little bit of the the background, I guess, maybe of of the season going in interesting directions uh, right there, literally uh, game by game there on uh, on Kent's websites, which I thought was really interesting, really neat, and also interesting to hear sort of the quality of the uh, 
of the on-air broadcast kind of waning and waxing, depending on how uh, how the stars and the clouds were aligned that evening with a, uh, a, a, a I'm assuming a, a wattage that sort of uh, changed as the uh, day changed tonight. Yeah, I don't think WMYS, and actually all those recordings, I, I think are recorded, I think I had them recorded back at the, the studio, so they would have been coming through uh, at the time the phone lines to do that. This was before ISDN and before, you know, voice over IP and all this, so you were kind of at the mercy of the, uh, you know, AT&T at the time, or whatever the phone company was, getting your voice from point A to point B. So, so yeah, here, going back to being a pack rat, saving all these things, so I saved all of these cassettes, and almost all of the broadcasts survived. So I digitized them all and uh, figured, you know what, again, maybe three or four people out there are interested, but um, I thought they should be preserved for posterity. So they're all out there. All the ones that I have are out there and you can listen to uh, all the Indiana Twisters uh, games that exist from those two seasons. Um, And yeah, we had some interesting broadcast setups as well. I mean, uh, I borrowed the uh, the broadcasting equipment was actually borrowed from the Indianapolis Ice because the the guy who succeeded me came back in as the broadcaster for the Ice. Ken Double was a friend of mine, and rather than go out and buy all of our you know new broadcast equipment, since we were playing in the summer and the Ice were playing in the winter, we just basically leased their broadcasting equipment. So I was at least used to the setup. It's a pretty decent setup, uh, but um, you know you, there were some nights where it just didn't work. So I remember doing an entire game in Detroit actually speaking like I'm speaking to you on a handheld phone held up to my ears. And I, by the time the game was over, I couldn't unclench my hand because it had been wrapped around this phone receiver for three hours. So I had to like pry it out of my hands. Um, and there were other places like in, um, in Portland, I remember trying to convince a, an operator to reverse the charges so that we could actually get on the air because it was a West Coast game. It was very late. We couldn't get anybody in the office. And here I am. I need to get on the air, but I had to convince the the operator from Portland or wherever she was to reverse the charges so that we could actually get our broadcast on the air. So, yeah, fun times in broadcasting with a nascent team. Um, all right, I, I'm not going to ask you yet. At what point did you question your sanity? I'll get to that in a, a little, a little bit later. Um, but so, the, but you you alluded to it before. You, you had the first home game in. in uh, you, you lost to the team lost their debut game to Detroit uh, in, uh, on June 14, 1996. But a week later, uh, you have a nice, uh, a, a decent crowd, just over five thousand at Market Square Arena, and the game uh, was actually probably pretty fun. Uh, it looks like it was uh, went down to the wire. Where there was a game, uh, I guess, uh, there was an overtime goal that uh, just a heartbreaking loss. Uh, did it seem like you were it, did it feel like it was uh, everything was off to a good start? It seems like uh, from an outsider's perspective that you couldn't ask for a more entertaining debut. That was the feeling. Um, 25 seconds away from winning 6-5, um, the, the Warthogs score, and then you lose. But that's indoor. I mean, that can happen. You can go from leading with 25 seconds left to losing in overtime in a heartbeat. That's what it was. But I will tell you that the after party after that game, because everything had been building up to that night, you only get one inaugural home game in your history. Um, and it was a it was a good crowd. It was a good game. We thought the sky was the limit. Everybody was really optimistic, even despite the loss. So at the party afterwards, which went on till the wee hours, um, you know, we we were very optimistic that this is a launching point and things are going to get better from here. Little did we know that a we'd lose the first four, 
um, and struggle really to, to get any semblance of traction from the team side. But then when we started to find out that, you know, people were not coming to games, partially because we didn't really have sales and marketing efforts, but uh, for a variety of reasons, um, yeah, then kind of that optimism kind of dwindled. And by the time we got to August, I mean, it was, it was kind of a, you talk about the dog days in baseball. Yeah, some, a lot of that optimism had, had really gone. Well, let, let's let's sort of uh, the the hints of that didn't take fairly long to kind of uh, uh, identify themselves, right? So, I, and again, this is more an outsider's perspective. So you probably have more of an insider's uh, knowledge about what was going on. But uh, and by the way, Ken has also uh, got some really uh, good uh, blow by blow, uh, date by date uh, uh, history points uh, about the first year of the Twisters as well. And I think uh, yeah, uh, folks who uh, grew up or watched those games will uh, probably. Uh, uh, remember a bunch of these, but uh, it seems to me like the first sort of uh, hint of uh, questionableness, I guess if that's a word, is in July, not a, not a month later, where uh, Rodney Goins decides that he's going to keep his title as president, but he's going to kind of work towards joining the team as a player. And then there's a new general manager that comes in. What, what's that all about? Right. And this where it became obvious that, you know, we were struggling to draw people at the gate and that someone had to come in here who had some semblance of uh, an idea about how you sell and market a team. Bob Wilbur, good guy. Actually, you should get him as a guest as well. Now I think he's in order. He's just written a book as well. So he's had a varied career. So he comes in, new general manager. <clears throat> Rodney was miscast as a general manager. Um, what he really wanted to do was play, which he eventually did. But yeah, Bob Wilbur comes in. At least he had—he was the grown-up in the room in terms of his experience in pro sports. Now, when you come in halfway through a season, there's very little that you can do to correct things for that season, and because those things take time, it takes time to build those relationships. It takes time to find those sponsors and to sell those tickets, and you know, get groups together and things like that. So, Bob was kind of behind the eight ball from the get-go, and so ownership being impatient as ownership often is, it really didn't stabilize things that much. Um, Rodney, like I said, becoming an active player kind of added to the circus atmosphere. Um, to the players on the team, they kind of looked side-eyes at this because, you know, Rodney had scrimmaged with the team, you know, and, and there's usually this demarcation that you're either team side or you're front office side, and if you try to go from one to the other, there's going to be a little bit of tension there. Um, Rodney was not a bad player, um, you know, had he not tried to drop ship himself into the, into the game, you know, halfway through after, after it'd been years since he had played outdoor soccer, that'd be one thing. Um, but he was not, certainly not a difference making player. And by the time we got into that summer and got into, uh, late July, early August, the team was actually playing a little bit better. We had some dramatic, uh, some fun wins, but the crowds just weren't materializing and, we were starting to think that, you know, hey, maybe the optimism that we had after game one um, was a little bit uh, premature and that things were, you know, rumors are flying. And, you know, like I said, Weinstein's flying in to try to have meetings and try to correct the situation. And by the time we get to, to late August, things uh, just went completely pear-shaped. Okay, friends, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to quickly remind you that today's episode of Good Seats Still Available is brought to you by our friends at Audible, the premier provider of digital audiobooks with over 180,000 titles to choose from in just about every genre you could think of. Audible titles play on iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices and MP3 players for listening anytime, anywhere. 
And for a limited time, my audience can listen to a free download of any book that they choose, as well as get a 30-day free trial when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And you can choose from over 180,000 titles, as we said, including uh, one that I'm listening to right now. It's called The Ten-Gallon War by John Eisenberg. That's the story of the NFL's Cowboys, the AFL's Texans, and the feud for Dallas's pro football future. Um, another one on my list, which I have yet to download, but is on my queue, uh, that could be interesting to our audience here, is called The National Forgotten League by Dan Daly. Entertaining stories and observations from pro football's first 50 years. Those are just two of the many thousands of titles to choose from, and not just in sports history, but you name the genre that uh, you might want to listen to, and Audible's got it. By the way, two uh, two guests, perhaps, that we'll have on the show, hopefully sometime soon. But again, go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free 30-day trial, as well as your free audiobook download to try it out for yourself. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now, back to our conversation. So how are you uh, interpreting July and August then? Um, it looks like the uh, the Board of Governors, right, to the fact that that, that actually has to be a thing, uh, approves uh, uh, Rodney uh, Gons uh, becoming a player. Uh, it, uh, it, uh, it clearly seems to me that Wilbur couldn't uh, immediately get stuff sort of together, or maybe he could, but recognize that he didn't have the funds and or the uh, ownership uh, oversight that uh, he needed to kind of do it. So it seems like that's when the league kind of had to sort of at least start to to step in with with at least some thoughts. Uh, maybe you can maybe describe kind of the by day and by night sort of existence in August, right? When you're trying to, you know, uh, put across the air of professionalism on the air and describing a team and uh, its successes and its travails, but uh, behind the scenes, maybe uh, not always knowing what's going to happen next or, or rumors of such. Yeah, that's when you, it puts you in a, in a weird position because, you know, I was trained as a journalist. And so the story was, you know, what was really going on, the tumult behind it. But as someone who's getting paid by the team to put the best face on things, you were kind of not able to, I mean, we weren't doing any frontline investigations about David and Rodney's finances at halftime of a game against the Dallas sidekicks. So you were trying to stay positive, uh, trying to, you know, just stick with the game and, and uh, be exciting about that. And, it, and at that point still, you know, we'd all gotten uh, we'd all gotten paid, as far as I know. But there started to be a point where checks, at least my checks, I can't speak to the players because the players were paid by the league. Uh, you know, things were in arrears a bit, and so that's usually the first sign that things aren't going well when you're, you know, you, you you're supposed to get paid and checks are delayed or whatever happens. So started to think that hey, things were not going quite so well, and then suddenly, boom. Um, you know, Weinstein comes to town, they have a, a press conference that, you know, everything's going to be okay. And next thing you know, a couple of weeks later, David and Rodney just pulled out completely. And then the CIS has to say, okay, we're taking over. And what they did then was, which I thought was actually a savvy move. And had this continued, this might've been bode even well for us, even better for us the second year, was they brought in Roy Turner. Roy Turner had been the longtime coach of the Wichita Wings. He'd been in the front office of the Wings. He understood the indoor game inside and out as far as sales and marketing. And so for that last month, 
um, he was the general manager of the team. Um, Roy Turner was basically with a skeleton staff running that team for the for the last month as they were wards of the league and as they tried to find some investor to come in and 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 take over the team, which they eventually did. But uh, Roy Turner was fun. Anybody who worked with Roy or was around Roy knows that that Roy was fun, big personality, and so that last month was. Um, uh, on a shoestring would be to say the least, you know, we only had one home game towards the end. So they were building towards that last home game. I think the last home game, every ticket was like five bucks. We got 9,000 people a game. Um, but I will tell you this one story. So, uh, David and Rodney pull out. So I'm thinking, what does this mean for me? Are they going to continue to do the broadcast? What the team is supposed to leave on a road trip. This is late. Uh, so this is early September. So the next day, we're supposed to leave going on a road trip. I think we were supposed to go to Dallas and Monterey. I'm sitting at home, waiting by the phone, trying to discover, should, should I get up in the morning and go to Indianapolis International Airport because we're going on this road trip? We're going to do the broadcast or not? Roy Turner called me up like 10 o'clock that night and said, look, the decision's been made. There will be no more radio broadcasts for the remainder of the season. So that was basically it for me for 1996. Um, I did do public address announcing for that last game, that last home game. But in terms of uh, broadcast history for that 96 season, that was when they pulled the plug. So that's the end of uh, that's the end of August. OK, and then the team basically officially suspends operations and all that. And then David and Rodney pull out. CISL takes on the, uh, the this in September. So um, but I want to go back to a point. So you, you said before about uh, people getting paid, right? Uh, interesting point, right? The CISL paid the players as part of the league. So this was not the franchise's direct responsibility. The players were employees of the league, right? And I think this was also a bit of the the novelty of the CISL in that it was single entity, which at the time was still a bit nouveau, right? Right. And so what it was, was, so the league actually wrote checks to players. Everything came out of the league office, um, I guess, which was in California. Um, but each team had a monthly assessment. So every team had to put in, uh, you know, their money every month so that the league was able to pay the players. And they had A contracts and B contracts and C contracts and local player contracts. So it was basically the structure where if you had an A contract, I think I want to say it was like three grand a month, maybe 3500 a month. Uh, and then a B contract was either 2500 thereabouts a month. And this is all gross figures. Um, and then a C contract less than that. And then there were some local players that you could literally pay $75 a game because they were just local guys who you'd find in your local league. And so, yeah, so there was this kind of quasi single entity structure. It wasn't really set up, I don't think, as an LLC, the way Major League Soccer is. But yeah, there were some of these these elements of the league having control over paying the players and of league-wide sponsorship deals, which trickled down to everyone else. Um, so yeah, it was, it was kind of an interesting setup there at that time. Didn't save them, obviously. So while you're not doing the broadcast, though, you're still uh, an employee of the team. You're doing uh, the, the public address stuff. Um, oh, no, 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 no. I wasn't no. an employee of the team. Uh, so, so I was an independent contractor, basically. Um, but yeah, I basically had nothing to do for the last month. But then they did say, look, we're going to have this one more home game will you do public address announcing? I was like, okay, fine. I don't have anything else to do. That's, that's fine. That was all I did. It wasn't like I was going into the office every day anyway. That happened in the second year when I was actually an employee and became the media relations director in addition to being the team broadcaster. But yeah, that when the David Rodney pulled out and when Roy Turner called and said, you know, we're not doing any more broadcasts for this year, that was basically it. I was done. Got it. Okay. So, but in steps new management. So uh, these trucking guys, uh, Dan and Carl Cook, uh, come in and purchase a franchise at the tail end of September. 
what is your knowledge of that? And or it seems like that was the idea for the fresh start, right? New team, new uh, new team name, exact, excuse me, uh, new logo, new everything, right? And uh, and a rebirth of the broadcasts. Yeah, you know when I found out uh, that the team had been sold, it was in the paper in the story about the one of the road games, whatever. It's in the Indianapolis Star the next day. You know, Twisters they played the game, and here's the score. And oh, by the way, the the team has been purchased by Dan and Carl Cook. Uh, and you know they intend to keep it and play it in '97. I was like, oh well, that's interesting because that was the first I'd heard of it. Dan Cook, great guy. Carl is his father. Um, so they had made their money in trucking, um, you know, shipping freight and stuff all over the country. They had done really well. To this day, I still don't understand why. I mean, Dan really didn't have a big interest in it. I still don't understand why they did it. Um, but you know, thankfully for all of us who were involved, they did do it. Um, super great, cool owners, you know, really kind of hands offish in a way, definitely not one of those, you know, owners that comes in and tries to do stuff that they don't know how to do. They were really hands off. Uh, but yeah, so we were thinking, Hey, this is great. The team is saved. There's going to be another year. But at that point, no, I had no idea. You know, I'm on a basically day to day, month to month, you know, at the whim of the, of the front office, whether I'm the guy to come back the next year. So, uh, I had left local television at that point. I was working at a bank in the off season and I was hoping like everybody else just going when you're not in it, you know, the, the off season with the CISL having a short season playing in the summer from October till the next June, that's a long off season, man, especially when you're not sure what's going to happen. Um, so yeah, I was, uh, I was trying, waiting to find out like everyone else, exactly what their plans were. And luckily for me, they decided, yes, we are going to do, uh, we're going to do the same thing broadcast wise that we did in 96 and 97, same radio station. Um, luckily me as the incumbent that helped it was like, there were a lot of people beating down their door to, to be the broadcaster of the twisters. And so we were able to, to uh, do it all again in 1997 and things were way better. Um, but things were also comical slash circus like fun, but at least you weren't really worried from day to day, whether the team was going to fold. All right. When, when did you sort of see 97 being sort of the uh, the beginning of a, of a new beginning and maybe the beginning of the end? Because it seems like the league itself uh, was having issues too, not just uh, a stabilized uh, franchise in now the newly renamed Indiana Twisters. Right. Well, the, uh, you know, as things progressed over the off season, you know, I was waiting to hear what was going to happen. And it wasn't until I guess late in the spring that they made the decision that they were going to be back on WMYS and we were going to do broadcasts and I was going to be involved and all that. Yeah. So, um, the Arizona Sand Sharks had got new owners. And so they'd sat out in 1996, but they were coming back in 1997. And then right on the eve of the 97 season, the San Diego soccers went dark, which what they said was a hiatus as it turned out that was the end of the original version of the San Diego Soccers. So we start the season, things are going much better. The, you know, the, we, we felt better about things. Uh, we, things were much more professionally run. We ran, you know, moved to new offices. Um, we had things going on, uh, felt a lot better. Team struggled a little bit out of the gates, but then really caught fire. And then about midway through, maybe not quite midway through the season, um, again, the crowds were not materializing. We were not getting people to come out to games. And again, this goes back to not having robust sales and marketing efforts and really not having people in the front office who were working day to day to day to day every day, eight to 10 hours a day trying to sell tickets. It was basically, well, we'll throw open the doors and hope that somebody shows up, which they did not. So uh, Dan Cook and Kim Cook, his wife, uh, who's also a great owner, 
super lady, um, they had to cut ties with the general manager that they had hired. Um, they had hired a family friend who's, I forget, I think his actual business was uh, selling farm implements. I think like, I think that was his line of work. And he was like a part-time basketball scout or something. But anyway, didn't had no idea how to run a professional sports franchise. Zero idea. And so they fired him and brought in a guy named Bradbury, who I knew because he'd worked for the Indianapolis Ice when I was doing their games. And he understood. He understood that this is about ticket sales first and foremost. And so when he came in, took over as his general manager, we became a much more professional outfit. But by that point, you know, again, you got to have long lead time for these things. And so Brad was able to come in and do, um, do good things so that we were able to, to get more revenue in the door and to make the outlook a bit brighter. But meanwhile, the league was falling apart. And that goes back to, again, this kind of disconnect between the goals of some owners versus the goals of some other owners versus the goals of the commissioner. And so CISL was not at all a well cap by the time it got to September of 97. How did that evidence itself to you as you were going around the league and 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 it seemed like the indiana situation would stabilized a bit and quite a bit frankly from the year before but when did you kind of know the things or or was it a surprise because i think there are some people depending on who you ask at the end of the 97 season or actually the end of the year of 97 uh, when the league uh, folded and then sort of the uh, the diaspora went on to the WISL and the Premier Soccer Alliance and those the remnants of such. Um, uh, how did when did you know it was sort of kind of falling apart and or maybe on its last legs? Or, well, you, you start to hear. I mean, everybody talks to everybody else. Right. So as you'd go around the league, you'd be talking to your counterparts. I'd be talking to other broadcasters. Hey, did you hear about this? There was always if you've been in indoor soccer for any length of time at all, there's always rumors. Hey, there's going to be a new team in insert city here. Hey, there's going to be a new team in Boston. There's going to be this. Oh, I heard, I heard this team is going to uh, move to this place. Detroit had been a disaster. I mean, they were one of the worst teams that year in the history of the indoor game. And so, um, you know, you could see they're announcing 10,000 and there's maybe, you know, 2,500 people there because they were giving away scads of tickets and they had a horrible team. Uh, Arizona wasn't doing great shakes under new ownership and they weren't, you know, just crowds were kind of downish around the league. And so it wasn't really anything where we said, oh, this is a dead man walking. We just felt like, you know, okay, there are some trouble spots here um, and people are talking, but people talk all the time. So as we went around and around to places, you'd talk to your, you'd talk to your counterparts, but we were so caught up in the fact that, you know, by this point, the Twisters themselves are playing really, really well. And we really had a chance to maybe win a championship. So all those other things were not first and foremost on our minds. It was like, hey, we've got an exciting team that's playing really well and lots of fun things are happening. And the money problems were someone else's responsibility at that point. Even though they were going to directly affect all of us, uh, we weren't, we weren't, that wasn't our primary concern. So quickly, let's talk about the, the play, though, that you saw for the, for the two years, both the, both the team as well as the league, because it seems like it was a hell of a lot of fun, and it seems like it was marketed as, a, as an experience, as an entertaining opportunity. Uh, it was a soccer, of course, indoor style, but, you know, the music and the announcements, and it seemed like some of those uh, maybe breakthrough ideas or presentation concepts from the old MISL uh, really took on sort of new life. Um, if you look at some of the videos of these games, it seems like it was a family entertainment uh, experience, or at least tried to be marketed as such. Yep, 
You're exactly right. Uh, and they had adapted uh, many of the things that had made the original MISL successful. Um, and it helped, too, that, uh, you know, there were a lot of great indoor soccer players still in the CISL at that point because they hadn't gone outdoors. You know, we still had Tattoo, who's one of the great players of all time, but guys like Zazinho and David Doyle and Marco Lopez and Mark Thomas and Dale Irvine, who's my all-time favorite player. I mean, we still had really good players in the league, and so the quality of play was very high. Um, it was very exciting. It was a lot of fun. Um, and so it was a good product that they were putting out on the floor. It was just a weird time of year to try to do it. And then when, like I said, when the WNBA came into being and owners saw, hey, maybe we can do a little bit better with women's basketball in the summer than with this indoor soccer game that's pretty chaotic, uh, maybe we'll devote our energies in that area. And so a lot of them did do that. But the quality of play was was very high. Um, a lot of a lot of players ended up actually playing. They would play year round because, again, if you play in the summer and then the NPSL was playing in the winter, I knew a lot of guys who went back and forth. Uh, probably took a couple years off the end of their lives, or, or didn't help them injury wise, but they were able to to make uh, paychecks from two different leagues over the course of a year. So in that respect, uh, it was a really high quality of play. Maybe even better than the NPSL at that time, but at least comparable. And it's, so it seems like, though, that the uh, the direction of the league was torn apart by those who were the sort of pros in the arena ownership and other major league uh, ownership teams and those that were not. Is is, is that a, a correct assessment or were there other things underlying, too, do you think? I think that's part of it. The other thing that I heard a lot and didn't hear this until right at the end when the actual split happened, when when the sidekicks pulled out. And I want to say that was about close to Christmas of 97 was that, Hey, Ron Weinstein's the only guy making money at this thing. And that was because he had um, a codicil in his employment contract that he would get a piece of any expansion fee, uh, which makes sense in some respect. I mean, a lot of uh, the expansion fees obviously would be dispersed around the league. And so the commissioner getting a piece of it, that's fine. But the commissioner didn't have to run a team and actually, you know, expend money to run a team. So he was getting a slice of expansion fees as well. So if I incentivized you, Tim, to, you know, to get a piece of expansion teams, what would you do? You'd bring in a lot of expansion teams. That's exactly what they did. And so the, the, the thought among several owners in the league was, hey, Weinstein's the only guy. He's making out like a bandit on this deal. And here we are losing lots of money every year. This is, this is not the way to go. And so I think that contributed, too, to the, them just throwing in the towel. And once Dallas pulled out, I mean, Dallas was the first. I mean, that was the, you know, you pulled the plug on, on them, and they pulled out of the league. A lot of other people said, well, if Dallas is out, then we'll just be out, too. Um, and, and that was really the end of the CISO. Did, did Dallas, as far as you know, did Dallas uh, leave with intention to go to this sort of uh, other uh, league, this premier soccer alliance alternative, or did they go out and then somehow come back with these other uh, somewhat like-minded owners to, to form the PSA? Uh, right. After. As far as I know, as far as I know, they, they, they so they pulled out, but they were not intending to go dark. They wanted the Dallas sidekicks to continue. And so there was this faction of, you know, Dallas was an influential franchise with, uh, you know, lots of connections and they had their history. And Gordon Jago was a very hardworking person and a very charismatic person. And so as I read it at the time, uh, when they pulled out near Christmas of 97, their intention was always to start another league and take with them whoever had shared their vision and whoever was able to, uh, you know, wanted to go and, and continue to play with the, the changes that they wanted to make. So they were able to get San Diego to come. Oh, no, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Actually, that, that first year of the PSA in 98 
was kind of like a skeleton season, kind of like if you remember the, the one, the test season that uh, Arena Football had, where they only had four teams and they sure. kind of went around to um, neutral sites. So they, so Dallas and Sacramento were basically the two strongest teams that year. They were able to get convince Arizona to come with them and Portland to come with them as well to make that four-team league in '98. But my sense was that they always intended to continue on. They just didn't want to play under the CISL masthead anymore. And it seems like the Twisters were were never going to be part of any of those conversations, despite, though, doing pretty well getting into the playoffs and and in a heartbreaking fashion, losing in a minigame in early October, Uh, you know, and uh, again, arguably some stabilization of the franchise. It almost feels like, and again, this is sort of hindsight, right, that, you know, if there had been something called the uh, CISL in the following year, that that perhaps Indiana would be back again. Uh, Is that a fair assessment or, or is that naive? It's, no, it's it's very possible. Here's what happened. Um, so I'll tell you as it, as it went down even before that. So uh, to go back to that mini game, uh, the interesting part was okay. So so the team finishes 17 and 11, finishes second in the in the Eastern Division, got home field advantage for the first round of the playoffs against Houston. Unfortunately, Market Square Arena, which was a great arena for indoor soccer and for hockey. That was the time when hockey season was getting ready to start. So that Saturday, when we would have been playing at home, we would have played the first game in Houston on Friday, we would have played the second game and the potential mini game at home on Saturday. Saturday was booked because the Indianapolis Ice had the arena. So we had two choices. So our, our general manager, Brad Beery, had two choices. Either play on the Sunday, play in Saturday and Friday or Saturday in Houston, come back and play in Indiana on Sunday evening, I guess, and have that mini game and have an actual home field advantage and potentially draw a not great crowd on a Sunday evening or give up home field advantage, play on the Friday, get a better crowd, um, but have to go on the road for a potential second yeah, for a second game and potential mini game. Now, that was my first real, I mean, at that point, I'm thinking, well, you know, you, you worked all year to get home field advantage. Why would you give that up? But as Brad explained it, you know, they were hemorrhaging money at that point. So the chance to get a decent crowd outweighed the competitive uh, the competitive advantage issues. Now, here's the thing. On that Friday night game, there was no reason that the Twisters should have lost that game. Should have won that game, and then, but there was no reason they should have won in Houston the next night, and they certainly did, uh, forcing that minigame. And because this team was the best-conditioned team in the league, I was just certain. There was no question in my mind they were going to win the minigame because this is what they'd been training for and training hard for all year, and it didn't work out. Mariano Balela blew out his knee, ended up losing in the minigame, and that was the end of uh, the 97 season for the Twisters. So fast forward like a week. By that point, again, I'm uh, an actual front office employee, media relations director, and broadcaster. The broadcast is over. You know, they called me in and sat me down and said to a lot of us that day, look, you know, it's a long off season. I don't have anything for you to do. I don't know what the future is, so we're going to have to let you go. So that was, the, that was the end of my tenure there. But at that point, it looked to all intentions like there was going to be a next year somewhere for the Twisters. I had heard that they'd lost a million dollars that year. Um, just in the one year of ownership, so that's not something that you would necessarily want to repeat. Um, but I think when the when the league itself fell apart, it maybe gave the cooks an out to say, mm, maybe we won't do this, uh, maybe we won't go forward, or maybe we'll find someone willing to take this off our hands, which they actually did. It didn't work out, but as you know, there was an intent to play another season of the Indiana Twisters. It just didn't work out. Why were the why were the playoff games? Why was it going into October? Right? Wasn't this originally supposed to be a summer league? And and now you're right. starting to bleed into the competition that 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 the original owners kind of wanted to avoid. 
Yeah, it had a little creep here because the season stayed the same length, 28 games. It was always 28-game seasons, but they started to the playoffs as you got more and more teams in them. Obviously, they, they started to creep a little bit. Like, I mean, the finals, the finals the first year in 93 were in the very beginning of October. Game three was on October 3rd, 1993. By the time we got to 97, the playoffs had been expanded, and so there were more teams in, and they were going you know best of two with the minigame, the minigaming the third game. And so by the time we got to the end of of the '97 season, um, we're we're looking at getting into getting into mid October. Um, and by the time Seattle beat Houston in the finals, it was October 19th. So things had crept pretty far away from the original. A couple of weeks uh, from the original idea, which was summertime soccer. Now you're getting into a part of the year where you're going to have conflicts with hockey, and you're going to have trouble getting dates and things like that. So um, things got a little bit got a little bit weird there. Okay, so the the assets of the team uh, get purchased, and and I think I'm guessing that uh, that also helped uh, uh, you along as well as uh, as the uh, the A League and outdoor and, and Indiana sort of uh, uh, continued to kind of sort of uh, uh, re-energize and, and grow. Uh, maybe a little bit of a post mortem on on the team and sort of. Then uh, the, uh, the the path that uh, that you took afterwards uh, and continuing somehow in this wacky world of soccer, despite this experience. <laughs> well, the end of the twister is really kind of can be summed up this way. Uh, losing Houston on that playoff game. I think our flight out the next day wasn't till like six o'clock. We couldn't get a flight out of Houston till like the following night, maybe five, six o'clock in the evening. One of our players and I started drinking at like 10 o'clock the next morning. Now, anyone who knows me, I don't drink anymore, but I was never a big drinker. But this guy started at 10 a.m. I was out by like 10.30, 10.45. He <laughs> kept drinking, kept drinking, kept drinking. By the time we got to the airport, was completely blitzed. And so he gets on the plane, he's blitzed. He's being belligerent. He's just being what he thought was playful, but was really overbearing on the on the plane. This was the first and only time uh, in all my years of flying that I've ever actually seen uh, authorities come onto an airplane and physically remove someone. It wasn't like they dragged the guy off like the, like happened earlier uh, this year, unfortunately, uh, on, a, on, a, on an airliner. But the, the police did come and escorted this player off the team, off the, the, the flight. One of the other players said, well, I'm not going to let him you know, sit here overnight in jail by himself. So he got off the plane as well. So they sat in Houston overnight and flew back home the next day. Um, and, uh, and meanwhile, everyone else, including our head coach, just kind of sat and chuckled about it. And I was thinking, this kind of sums things up, doesn't it? Here we are, you know, just lost in the playoffs. One of our better players getting thrown off the airline on the way home. What the heck else can happen here? Um, and as we come to find out, that was the, that was the last act, actually, of the Indiana Twisters. But it uh, it didn't um, uh, swear you off of the sport of soccer because you stayed involved, right? You uh, did other broadcast yes, exactly. work. So, yeah. so what's weird is at the time that we get to that 97 season, an outdoor team had launched in, in Indianapolis in what was uh, then the D3 Pro League, uh, the third division, the Indiana Blast. So being one of the few people in town, again, with any kind of soccer background at all in terms of working in a front office, kind of fell into doing media relations for them as well get to the end of 97 their owner pulls out so they get purchased by uh, a new owner a guy named uh, alex morris who owned a third-party administrative insurance company in town he buys the team um and then somehow over the winter i guess i think he was friends with the cooks as well i think they were pretty good friends somehow dan cook 
uh, it convinced him to take over the assets of what was left of the carcass of the of the Indiana Twisters with the intention of then putting them into the NPSL in 98-99. And that didn't come to fruition because in 98, Alex Morris lost his shirt with uh, his outdoor team. And so there really there just weren't the funds to uh, to run the dream of an outdoor team all winter or all summer and an indoor team in the winter that would have shared you know front office and would have shared some of the players. The players were looking forward to being able to stay in one place and play for two teams, um, and it didn't happen. And I'll give you an interesting interesting thing here too, Tim. Um, when when the team was going to come back, it wasn't going to be the Twisters, and here's why. Have you ever played foosball? Sure, of course. Okay, so you know some of the foosball tables. Uh, there was one of the one of the brands of foosball tables had a had a big I think it was called a tornado. So it had a big T in the middle, had a soccer ball on it, and it had what looked like wind going around it, kind of a in a tornado like thing. Well, they actually sent us a cease and desist order to because they didn't want us. Our logo at that time was soccer ball around a kind of a vortex of a tornado-ish type thing. And they said it was too similar, causing confusion in the marketplace. So had Indiana come back into the NPSL in 1998, we were going to be the Indiana Vortex. Um, and not a lot of people know that, uh, but that was the that was the plan, and that was the reason why, because the makers of the foosball table uh, thought that our logo was too close to their logo, and so they were going to fight us in court over it. That's interesting because I, I wonder. I, I think I, I remember what that logo looked like, and it, and it hauntingly reminds me of the old Dallas Tornado NASL logo, which they must yep. have purchased or gotten out of receivership or something, and maybe tried to then uh, leverage going forward. Interesting. Yeah, it was it was similar. I mean, there's only so many things you can do with the you know now how how the the name Twisters came about. You know why? Because they had a name the team contest, and right at that point, that movie uh, Twister was big in '96, and so we kind of tied into that. So um, they they so that's how the the team got named. Um, I don't know who designed the logo. I don't know how that turned about. But yeah, as you look at it, um, the first year, so it's, it does have that kind of vortex. It was red and black the first year. By the second year, when we had green and purple as colors it was a little bit different but yeah it was uh, uh basically that kind of vortexy tornado-ish type logo all right a couple of things to wrap up and I, I appreciate your 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 spending so much time on this but this is good this is fun to sort of not only reminisce but also to maybe sort of uh, uh keep these sort of in the in the history books right because these are things that uh you know that that uh, need to be i think remembered and 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 we all learn from what uh, what happened in the past, we think. Uh, those who ignore it, of course, uh, are doomed to failure. But uh, we try to sort of memorialize these things. And and but it did. It's interesting to me, though, that um, there's a whole bunch of things that sort of seem very thematic uh, in these things. Right. We, we hear about uh, sort of owners that sort of come and go and and their sort of rationale for why they get involved in the first place, despite not having uh, any uh, pronounced uh, uh, background or or any qualifications, it seems. Uh, so that seems to be a theme. Uh, the the tenuousness of franchises and, and and making payroll and 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 the processes of such. But I, I'm just I'm uh, also surprised that uh, you would not have sworn off the sport of soccer. Or perhaps there had been something that uh, that you just felt was uh, so strong and, and and worthwhile to continue to pursue because you, you obviously continue to do so. Uh, when you moved to Chicago, the Chicago Fire, obviously, you have many people in the Chicago area remember you from the broadcast back in the mid and late 80s, excuse me, uh, 2000s. Uh, and uh, and this uh, the reincarnation of the MISL again, MISL 2, with the uh, Chicago Storm for two years where you were the uh, the, the, the broadcast voice of. Um, how did you not renounce yourself from it or, or what did what got into your uh, into your system to say, I'm going to keep doing this? 
Well, one, A, when you fall in love with a game when you're 12, 13 years old, it's it's not something that, that you give up on easily. So the game itself, I've always been in love with, but I also loved calling games. And if someone was going to have a team and someone was going to put on games and they were going to need a broadcaster, I wanted to be the guy who did those games. And so when I eventually moved from Indianapolis to Chicago, um, I had known the people in the front office of the fire, Peter Wilt and Steve Pastorino, because in Indiana, we were and back then we had kind of a loose affiliation, not like it is today, but we were kind of the affiliate of the Chicago fire. So uh, I, I knew them from that. They knew me. So I was able to fall into doing some public address announcing for them. And then that led to doing some radio and that led to those last few years doing doing uh, the television uh, on Comcast Sportsnet Chicago as well for the last three years, 05 to 07. But along that same time, you know, the MISL, as indoor soccer has always done, uh, we feel we've got to have a team in Chicago. Probably had more teams in Chicago than any other city in the country um, has had an indoor team. And so that came to be in the summer of 2004. And a friend of mine was their uh, PR director, so I had an in there and ended up doing those games. So from 04 to 06, I was doing indoor in the MISL with the storm and then going and going straight to outdoor uh, with the fire and then back into indoor and then back into outdoor. Um, and so that was uh, that was a lot of fun. And I just never wanted to really stop broadcasting the game or being around the game. And so after the fire, uh, I moved to Arizona for family reasons, and I still had my hand in the game. I did some Big Ten Network soccer on television, did the USL game of the week in 2011, and uh, did a handful of games for the local team here uh, a few years back. But for the most part, I haven't done any broadcasting in about five years, and I'm totally okay with that. It's just one of those things that ran its course. It was fun. I love talking about it. I uh, love um, you know the relationships that I made over those years, but uh, it's a young person's game now, so um, uh, it's best left to those folks. What about uh, your your take on soccer, right? Because soccer is one of those interesting sports that uh, has had a, a very torturous history professionally in this country. Uh, probably is the uh, the most, um, uh, I guess, uh, uh, proliferated uh, uh, number of leagues and teams and acronyms and, and, and whatnot. And, and arguably the reason I sort of got involved and interested in this sort of subtopic in the first place. But, you know, indoor soccer, right, is clearly a shell of its former self, maybe for some of the reasons we discussed otherwise or or maybe not. I, I kind of sort of saw, saw that. I remember going to the first Chicago Storm game, actually, uh, sitting next to uh, uh, the uh, former owner of the uh, old Chicago Sting, Lee Stern. And oh. I just it didn't you know, it, it felt reminiscent. But then in many cases, it felt like ah, this ain't what it used to be. Um, but I'm just curious as to your take, because you've you've been in the trenches in some of these uh, uh, fledgling leagues and, and, and the stories behind them about what you sort of see the future of, if there is a future of the indoor game, as well as now what seems to be a fledgling, although somewhat fractionalizing politically, uh, outdoor game in this country. You have a pretty good, unique view, I guess, on, on all that, I suspect. Well, in terms of uh, the other thing is that I'm a historian of the game, actually. And so you could take a long view of this. You see that, uh, like you said, this country and its relationship with soccer has been tortured to say the least ups and downs. We're in a golden era now. There's never been more interest. There's never been more stability. There's, even though below the surface, there's a lot of drama and sturm and drang going on. 
But in terms of indoor, you're looking at that first game in 2004 and saying this is not what it used to be. It was really good then compared to what it is now. Um, and now, I mean, any player who there, – there are only a handful of indoor players like an Ian Bennett or a couple of other guys who are really, uh, really, really skilled indoor players. The others are just kind of whoever teams can find because there's no money in the indoor game at all. I mean, there's nobody drawing great crowds. Sonora does pretty well down in Mexico in terms of drawing crowds. But a lot of it is just what I call subsistence farming. And so you're just not going to get – you know, robust front offices and great players and robust crowds like we had back in the 80s. So I always call indoor soccer the, the, the cockroach. So just nothing seems to be able to kill it, but it is nothing like it used to be even back in the early 2000s. Um, I think there's always going to be indoor soccer. It's just a matter of what it'll, what it'll look like. Um, this shifting cast of teams and cities and leagues and alphabets, I think, is just going to be the state of the game going forward the way it is. In terms of the outdoor game, like I said, this is a golden era. Um, we've got stability. We, we don't have what we had in the 80s with, you know, you never knew quite sure if your, your local NASL team was going to be around because in this common denominator that you touched on in terms of ownership commitment, um, it takes an owner to realize that this is going to be hard and this is going to be money lost over a period of several years Whereas Phil Woosnam back in the NSL days sold guys on, hey, you're going to be able to make money. The soccer is booming in this country. This is going to be amazing. It's going to be great. And when you know they, you didn't make money the first couple of years, um, they had no patience for it, and so they would pull out. And that still happens a bit today. Um, and that's been a problem with indoor. People get in with good intentions, or they get sold a bill of goods, or they, you know, they're over over optimistic about their financial prospects. And when it doesn't come to fruition right away, they panic, and that's the end of the club. It's a disposable kind of asset. Um, in terms of what's going on in outdoor right now, um, you know, a lot of it hinges on this court decision and whether the appeal by the NASL uh, upsets the apple cart uh, here in mid-December. Again, here we are coming to the end of the year with uncertainty about what the landscape's going to look like in 2018. And it hinges on something that has nothing to do with the 11 players on a side um, on a team. Um, so I think that's just the history of the game in this country. That's what it's always been. And that, that may be what it, what it is, at least to some extent, on a lot of levels going forward. I think the one thing, though, going forward that uh, that's it's really well, two things, frankly, I think one obviously is is media, although media is its own going through its own conniptions. Right. So the the idea of 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 television rights, you know, sort of funding everything may not necessarily be the sort of uh, uh, golden goose either. But um, it, it's this sort of thing of real estate. Right. I mean, uh, you see a lot of the discussions around. You know, is, is Nashville back in the lead or what's what of Miami and MLS and all those kinds of things? You know, a lot of it seems to sort of circle around or, or the announcement just the last week. You probably read about this uh, uh, Sterling Bay, this uh, construction uh, and uh, real estate company uh, proposing as either part of their uh, their pitch for the Amazon second headquarters or, or even independent of it, a 20,000 seat soccer stadium at the old Finkel factory here in Chicago. Uh, you know, in the face of a fact that there's actually an MLS team that has a stadium in Bridgeview. Right. With a USL team to, to supposedly fill that. Right. So it almost feels like that the business machinations of real estate are almost kind of, you know, and maybe to a, to a positive extent. Right. Because you could make the argument that, you know, there are lots of these smaller arenas now that didn't exist back, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And there are dates to fill. Um, I, I don't know. It just seems to be a, a trend that uh, it's, it's becoming of uh, that's not only evolving, but maybe uniquely around soccer going forward in this country. 
for good or for worse. The, uh, the Chicago thing, the Chicago thing that kind of blew my mind because the first thing I said was, "Wow, someone's actually able to get a stadium built in the city of Chicago." And that's the right. I mean, the whole reason, the whole reason that the fire are in Bridgeview and have been since 2006 is because the city of Chicago was not interested in having a soccer stadium, or no one was able to jump through the hoops to make it happen. Um, so I said, "A, somebody's able to get a soccer stadium built in Chicago. B, it's going to seat 20,000 for a USL team. That seems." really ambitious and it seems like it was on a valuable plot of land. And then to come to find out, um, someone pointed out to me that the tie, because I had heard about the potential Amazon and the slash stadium deal, because here in Phoenix, they were bidding for the Amazon. I mean, everybody's bidding to try to get Amazon second headquarters anyway. But a real estate deal is always going to be an easier sell than a pro sports franchise because you can entice people with big money to understand they understand land. They understand development. They understand, you know, those kind of things much more than they understand what you have to do to sell, you know, group sales to a, a game on a Saturday in July or August. So if you can speak to them in terms of, hey, we're going to make this land deal, this real estate deal, we're going to build here. It's always going to be a mixed use thing. There's going to be retail. And there's going to be hotels and shops. Every one of these things that you see nowadays, when they talk about a new stadium, it's always all the development that's going to happen, A, because of it or in conjunction with it. There was supposed to be a whole bunch of stuff happened in Bridgeview too, uh, around Toyota Park. I don't think any of that. I've been there a while, but I don't think any of that has really cropped up, has it? No, no, not, and, nothing of significance. Not, e- not even gone, an L track. The people in Bridgeview have gotten screwed left and right on taxes because their their municipality opted to pay the freight for the whole stadium. See, stadium deals just it's, it's just it's a tough business, man. That's why I'm I'm cautiously keeping an eye on these developments in Chicago because that seems like a real outlier to me. That seems like if they can pull that off, that will really be something different than I've seen before in the history of following this game. And last question, how about in Phoenix? Now you're in the, uh, the, um, uh, in the, I think in the Phoenix metro area, have you, yep. uh, uh, have you gotten any of the uh, sort of pangs to get sort of uh, clamor back into somehow into the USL and or potentially the march to MLS with them? Or are you just sort of, uh, uh, okay, just being a fan and or an enthusiast. Oh, and in terms of me myself, I'm not really. Uh, I've made no efforts in that regard. I mean, we have a finally have a, a decent uh, organization here. Uh, the first couple of owners of you know Reborn Outdoor Game here in Phoenix did most everything wrong. Um, the this new ownership has done almost everything right. Uh, I go to games with my son. Uh, they've got their own stadium. It's in a great location. It's a you know decent quality of soccer. It's a fun night out. Um, in terms of whether they're going to be one of the two that are supposed to be named by the end of the year, I wouldn't imagine that they're a slam dunk. Um, but this is an attractive metro area with a large population and favorable demographics and an ownership group with money and already has the land and could start putting shovels in the ground to upgrade their stadium the day after they were announced. So I, uh, I, don't, I don't say it's impossible for it to happen, for Phoenix to be an MLS uh, side in the in the coming years. I don't think they're one of the top two or three favorites, but, uh, you know, with everything that I've seen in this game over the last 40 years that I've been following it, nothing surprises me anymore. All right. Well, Ken, th- this has been uh, a surprisingly uh, fun and uh, an interesting conversation. And, and I actually shouldn't be surprising. I, I knew this was going to be interesting, uh, but I learned some things as I always do. And um, where can other people learn uh, all that you've uh, accumulated in your uh, historian role that you've got the website uh, you might kind of talk about sort of a little bit what uh, what you've done with that and and how you have digitized your pack rat uh, your pack rack um, your pack rat 
ness uh, online. We're coining a lot of words here. Today. I am. I, I, I'm good at it and sometimes not good at it. Yeah, I just Ken.com, K-E-N-N.com is just a place to basically put all the stuff that I don't have any other place to go that maybe nobody else is interested in, but maybe people who would listen to the show would be interested in. So if you go to K-E-N-N.com, I mean, kind of one of my things is is attendance figures. Um, so I you know keep track historically of as many leagues I've been able to find and, uh, and through attendance figures because I think those things should be written down somewhere. Um, and like you said, video clips, audio clips, uh, and other things that just strike my fancy from time to time. It's not something I make money off of. It's not something I sell advertising on. It's just basically a place to hang stuff out uh, the public bulletin board. And if anybody wants to uh, check it out, they can they can do that. And I'm grateful for anybody who does. But sometimes some of this stuff, like I say, interests just me or maybe now you or maybe some of the listeners of uh, your show. And, and that's a good thing because I don't think we should lose this history because it's fun and it's interesting. And like you say, it keeps drawing us back in no matter what we do. Uh, I agree. I think you undersold it. Uh, there's a, just a chock full of uh, of data and 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 fun stuff in there that uh, I think, frankly, is uh, one of the only places where some of these uh, nooks and crannies of, uh, of various uh, uh, soccer histories uh, exist. So uh, you are to be commended. And I hope that, uh, as you mentioned earlier about your uh, uh, your relationship with the folks at the National Soccer Hall of Fame, I, I uh, uh, actually uh, uh, very much agree and, and underline your uh, your beliefs that uh, the indoor game. Uh, should absolutely be not only uh, remembered, but uh, a, a, a very strong part of the history and the undercurrent of uh, the celebration of uh, soccer in this country. And you've lived it. And, um, you know, that uh, that kind of stuff is uh, important. And that's uh, partially why we do this show. So we and I thank you tremendously for um, for going down memory lane with us to to do that. Oh, it was great fun, Tim. I appreciate you uh, having me on, and uh, I will continue to be a fan of the show and listen to other things that that transpire. Because, like you said, I mean, these—you know—I'm showing my age, but these kids today—they don't really have an idea of kind of the fun stuff that happened back in the day. Um, you know, I know you've had my friend Andy Crossley on. I mean, here, here's another guy who, you know, just loves these short-lived and alternative things that would be lost otherwise. And I, I think that it's just important that we don't let these things just fade into the ether um, to where no one never hears about them again. You see, there, there you go. There's another interesting and fun conversation. I, I always learn something in these chats, and uh, and this is uh, no exception. Um, you know, the CISL is something I have passing awareness of, and, you know, this being a, a, a pretty big soccer fan and uh, and some an interested party in the pro uh, the pro game over the years, uh, even have gone to a couple of CISL games uh, in Seattle back in the day. Uh, but uh, you know, to to know the stories uh, behind its inception, the uh, rationale um, uh, underneath it, uh, the uh, the day to day running and uh, the shenanigans of it, uh, the demise uh, that uh, befell it, um, you know, these are all interesting sort of parts of. The tableau, in this case, of American professional soccer, uh, hopefully to be uh, remembered and uh, uh, lastingly so uh, in the uh, relaunched National Soccer Hall of Fame in Frisco, Texas, uh, coming to you, I believe, uh, sometime next year once the construction is uh, is finished. Uh, and hopefully uh, Ken and I and some others will be uh, helpful in, the, in, in trying to make sure uh, that the indoor game in all its various flavors uh, is uh, is remembered in its uh, uh, in its uh, important way uh, in the telling of that story. So uh, Ken, uh, as you can tell, obviously is a wealth of 
uh, soccer and uh, pro sports uh, knowledge, and you can benefit from such uh, by going to his website early and often. That's ken.com. That's K-E-N-N, two N's, dot com. And uh, he does it for fun. We do this for fun. Uh, if you enjoy this kind of thing, uh, I think you will find uh, uh, Ken's website to be a treasure trove. And uh, don't blame me if you uh, find yourself wasting uh, more than a few hours of time, uh, especially interestingly, the uh, the Twisters radio broadcasts, uh, literally the entire 1996 uh, season, at least until the uh, uh, the team's backers uh, pulled out and the, the entirety of the 1997 uh, season, including uh, those playoff games uh, against the Houston Hotshots. Um, uh, are there uh, for listening, and uh, it's a fun stuff. It's 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 a trip through, uh, uh, you know, nostalgia. It wasn't all that long ago, frankly, but uh, it's a it's a great testament to uh, you know and a real uh, understanding of what was going on in those in those days. Uh, and if you grew up in Indianapolis, or you were a CISL fan, or just an indoor soccer uh, uh, intriguist, if that's a word, if you somehow stumble across the uh, uh, the sport and uh, you're new to it, and you want to go back and see what was going on back in the day in the '90s. Uh, it's a great way to do it. Again, Ken.com, K-E-N-N.com. And again, our thanks to Ken Tomash, our guest for today's episode and uh, a fun one. And hopefully we'll get a few more folks from the uh, from the CISL in its uh, uh, in its uh, existence uh, on the show. Ron Weinstein, we know, is uh, still out there and with us and, and a few other folks indeed. So hopefully uh, we'll get to some of those folks. Uh, in the months to come in future episodes. Um, uh, let's see. For us, uh, goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's our website. Uh, that's the place that you can get uh, uh, old episodes of the show, uh, download. Uh, you can share them with your friends. Uh, you can find out what's going on with the show. Uh, obviously, you can uh, click into all the various media and books and movies and things that people have published or uh, have uh, created. And, uh, and one click away will get you to, uh, to those as well. Uh, and you also find, of course, our social media presences there too. Quick links to that. But if you don't want to do that, you can just go directly to Twitter and you'll find us there at Good Seats Still. Uh, if you want to go to Instagram, you'll find us there at Good Seats Still Available. And uh, on Facebook, uh, you can uh, like us there as well. Uh, again, thank you so much for listening. And of course, we want to thank our friends at Podfly Productions uh, for putting this monstrosity together every week, uh, despite their. Uh, uh, their efforts to avoid me. They do a tremendous job in putting all these pieces together. And we can't thank Corey Coates, Jerry Payne, Eric Begay, and David Gregerson and the entire team at Podfly Productions uh, enough. And that's podfly.net. And again, if you're thinking about uh, doing your own podcast or need some help, uh, give them a, uh, a try. I think you will uh, in, indeed enjoy and, uh, and love their services. Podfly.net. That's Podfly Productions. Thank you, guys. Uh, tip of the hat to you and uh, tip of the hat to you, the listener. Thank you for joining us and we'll talk to you uh, in your earbuds sometime next week with another fun-filled show. Thanks for listening. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.